He will start the talk just in a moment. So this morning, I'd like to uh, begin an inquiry uh, into how we practice with the shadow. (laughs) As you know, this topic came out of popular demand. (laughs) And I think I should bring in some theme music next next week for the beginning, because the shadow makes me think of that that old uh, television show, uh, Twilight Zone. And, uh, but it's a powerful topic. It's a, it's a term, which probably many of you know, which comes out of the work of uh, Carl Jung, Western psychologist, using the notion of the shadow, I think, for me, is a very skillful way to help unpack the nature of ignorance, the nature of delusion, the nature of our... Um, what drives us in a more unconscious way. And it's um, a term which uh, I think can really help us to investigate in certain ways some of the structure of our own ignorance. We know that the core intention of Buddhist practice is to um, bring insights, and love where there is ignorance and confusion and tendencies towards greed and aversion. That's the center of the practice. I like the concept of the shadow and find it very useful because it helps point towards parts of our ignorance that we wouldn't necessarily look at otherwise including if we're very steeped in Buddhist practice. It helps point the direction at certain uh, areas of our personal and collective lives that are often uh, not known well and that drive our behavior nonetheless. So this morning I want to I think give the first of three uh, talks and there'll be exercises that I'll do in the middle of the talks to kind of make the theme come alive in our own experience. Uh, Exploring the nature of the shadow. And I think this first morning I'd like to explore question of what is the shadow? How do we work with it? How do we explore our own shadow? Personal collective. Next time, I'd like to continue with a focus on the, uh, particularly on the individual shadow, which will be my main focus this morning. And I'd like to uh, explore, particularly next time, what is the shadow of spirituality? Interesting topic. (laughs) What is the shadow of spirituality, spiritual practice, And how can we work with that? And then the third 
morning, I'd like to integrate that with looking more in a focused way on what we might call the collective shadow. And I'll explain all of those terms <coughs> further just in a, in, uh, in, in a short while. So generally, the shadow is that which uh, doesn't fit our self-image. It's that which doesn't fit our self-image, and that would be the case as individuals, as a family, as a community, or as a society. Those kinds of phenomena which don't fit, uh, don't fit who we think we are. And so you can see that uh, with Buddhist practice having such a strong emphasis on the nature of the self, looking at the shadow helps us see some of the structure of our self-image, what it includes and what it excludes. So, for example, um, I might have been uh, brought up, for example, so that um, anger is not part of my self-image. And I might have found, found in Buddhist practice a way to continue to be quiet, nice, peaceful, not angry. Anger may become, through my upbringing and even my Buddhist practice, part of my shadow. It's something that doesn't fit with my self-image. I do not get angry. That can be a personal issue. It can also be the issue in a whole spiritual community. We do not express anger because if we express anger, that surely shows that we're spiritually immature. You get the sense of how the social pressures start to to build up and um, develop the shadow. So it can have roots in a family. So it might be my um, it might be my anger. I think in uh, Western Europe in the 19th century, sexuality was in the shadow, and then along comes Freud and you know, the 20th century, and that changes some. But for many people, sexuality might be in the shadow. Um, This is a beautiful uh, reading from uh, a book by Robert Bly called A Little Book on the Human Shadow, (laughs) which is a little book. (laughs) So this is what he says that can help sort of bring out the sense of the shadow. He says, let's talk about the personal shadow first. When we were one or two years old, Uh, we had what we might visualize as a 360-degree personality. Energy radiated out from all parts of our body and all parts of our psyche. A child running is a living globe of energy. We had a ball of energy, all right, but one day we noticed that our parents didn't like certain parts of that ball. They said things like, can't you be still? Or, it isn't nice to try and kill your brother. Behind us, we have an invisible bag, and the part of us our parents don't like, we, to keep our parents' love, put in the bag. By the time we go to school, our bag is quite large. Then our teachers have their say. (laughs) Good children don't get angry over such little things. So we take our anger and put it in the bag. By the time my brother and I were 12 in Madison, Minnesota, we were known as the nice Bly boys. Our bags were already a mile long. Then we do a lot of bag stuffing in high school. 
This time, it's no longer the evil grown-ups that pressure us, but people our own age. So the students' paranoia about grown-ups can be misplaced. I lied all through high school automatically to try to be more like basketball players. <laughs> Any part of myself that was a little slow went into the bag. My sons are going through the process now. I watched my daughters, who were older, experience it. I noticed with dismay how much they put in the bag, but there was nothing their mother or I could do about it. Often my daughters seem to make their decisions on the issue of fashion and collective ideas of beauty, and they suffered as much damage from other girls as they did from men. So I maintain that out of a round globe of energy, the 20-year-old ends up with a slice. We'll imagine a man who has a thin slice left, the rest is in the bag, and we'll imagine that he meets a woman, let's say they're both 24. She has a thin, elegant slice left. They join each other in a ceremony, and the union of two slices is called marriage. <laughs> this is one view. <laughs> Even together, the two do not make up one personal marriage when the bag is large. Or, I'm sorry, do not make up one person. Marriage when the bag is large entails loneliness. During the honeymoon, for that very reason, of course we all lie about it. How was your honeymoon? Wonderful. How's yours? <laughs> different cultures fill the bag with different contents. In Christian culture, sexuality usually goes into the bag. With it, with it goes much spontaneity. Mary Louise von Franz, who was a um, colleague of Carl Jung, warns us, on the other hand, not to sentimentalize primitive cultures by assuming they have no bag at all. She says, in effect, that they have a different but sometimes even larger bag. They may put individuality in the bag or inventiveness and so forth. So you get a sense of the uh, um, power of the concept to really point to what gets suppressed. Uh, Jung's definition of the shadow was the negative side of the personality, the sum of all those unpleasant qualities we like to hide the negative side of the personality, the sum of all those unpleasant qualities we like to hide. Uh, Marie-Louise von, von Franz called it, said the individual shadow represents unknown or little-known attributes and qualities of the self. And I think that the shadow can also be positive, you know, that we can actually not be in touch with our beautiful qualities or our brilliance. And we tend to not recognize them in ourselves and tend to see them in people we call stars. And I'll talk more about that phenomenon because connected with the concept of shadow is a very central concept called projection, where we don't recognize something in ourselves and we project it on others, either good or bad. So I'm giving a little bit of a framework here and I'll get uh, by the second half of the talk to make it, try to make it very practical <coughs> for our own experience and how to work with it. This is another reading from a um, psychologist named Hal Zena Bennett. He says, the shadow self is the part of ourselves that we would just as soon keep buried. The challenge comes when we discover that it's a tremendous drain on our energy to keep this, these aspects of ourselves hidden. Because you have to have eternal vigilance. You know, I can't be angry. You know, or, and, and so forth. Once we get to know the shadow self, 
it can be an invaluable source of wisdom, compassion, and insight. And that was also Jung's sense. He said that the shadow carries important energies. It carries important energies and we can, in a way, uh, make friends with the shadow and that if we actually try to keep suppressing it, it can actually be destructive and dangerous. And in fact, a lot of the phenomena on a social level that have been extremely destructive, we can interpret as shadow phenomena. Uh, for example, a lot, of, a lot of the shadow is set up when we can't deal with a particular experience. I can't deal with my anger because there's a threat that if I'm angry I won't get love. And so I can't really be with that. And, I, and I'm, as a child, I'm in an impossible situation where I'm dependent on that love. And so I, for survival purposes, I create the shadow. You know, and some of it's cultural and some of it's uh, familial and so forth. Um, what we eventually want to do is to bring uh, awareness, love and compassion to the shadow. And so, um, let me say just a little bit more about the uh, collective shadow. Because I think there's also, there are also ways that, as I was mentioning, that certain parts of our collective lives can't be brought to public consciousness or aren't very much. And one of the areas would be the collective suffering of the past goes into the shadow. We would say something like the genocide of Native Americans or even slavery, they become shadow phenomenon because the society can't really deal with them fully. Deals with it only partially and it exists on the margins. So we know that the legacy of slavery is still with us because we as a society have not been able to uh, deal with it fully. We've dealt with it some, you know, which is better than some societies, but it's still very much that fact of the, the residue of the suffering of the past that's not dealt with tends to drive our behavior. For uh, Germany, after World War II, they couldn't really face the Holocaust. Immense. It's understandable why it's so hard to deal with, but it becomes the shadow. And so, if you were in Germany as a student in the 1950s or 60s, you would not have read about the Holocaust in your history books. Believe it or not. Or there'd be a few lines. You wouldn't really know. And, you know, I've had uh, friends who grew up in Germany who have told me about their, their stories. And there have been books and films written on that phenomenon. Things started to come more out in the open like 20, 30 years after the fact. That becomes part of the collective shadow. It's like driving behavior. It's like the elephant in the room. Everyone kind of knows it's there, but you don't talk about it. It's not, you can't really go there. And that drives a lot of collective phenomena. A lot of politics is like that as well. I worked in the US Congress for a summer when I was in college, and it was really apparent that there were certain taboo subjects that, that just, you could just not go there or talk about them. And you can still see that now. You know, who are, who are the way, even now with all the, I think there, personally I think there are positive changes <coughs> happening, but right now it's kind of, it's, I guess it's a question of whether it's going to be taboo to look at, all, to look at torture, right? Uh, and politically it seems like there's a deep desire to make that shadow material. <laughs> 
And we can ask, what happens when one doesn't deal with the pain of the past? On a personal level or a collective level, it will tend to drive behavior unconsciously. That's the shadow. You know, and we can see it there. And, and yet, it is possible to work with the shadow. And this is what we'll be exploring some, uh, particularly in meditative ways. But I'll, I think I'll bring in some other methods uh, next time. So there are ways to, um, to work with the shadow from the point of view of um, individual shadow work and psychology. Many of you know these methods. One can work with, with um, uh, methods which start to access the territory of the unconscious, start to access the areas that consciously we don't want to face. And so we can sometimes work with looking at dreams, which is one of the great tools of the 20th century psychologist. You look at the dreams and one can see in a dream that one might be, um, you know, where there's less central control (laughs) and certain things start to emerge. So there might be some of the shadow. You know, I remember a period... Where, um, where I was working with dreams a lot when I was in, I think, like my early mid-twenties. And for about two years, um, actually, um, dreams were, there was almost more happening in my dream life than my real life. <laughs> I was a student, so that explains it some. <laughs> but I, was, I would be like, uh, every morning I'd have four or five dreams that I would write down. And I remember in a sequence there that... Uh, every time I would go and be by a dark body of water, a monster would come out of the water. It was very interesting. Kind of an archetypal sense of the shadow. So you can look at a lot of the Hollywood monster movies with shadow analysis and have an have interesting time. <laughs> and, um, and so these monsters would come out, and it was some kind of, and I was afraid of them. And over seven months, and I was kind of paying a lot of attention to the dream, I was doing some psychological work. Over seven or eight months, every time in the dream there'd be like a, mon- a dark water monster would come out, and eventually the monster came to land, and there was one dream where I kissed the monster. Aww. It was the end of a sequence. It's like Beauty and the Beast, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's like, so you... So you, there's it's just um, the imagery is incredible, and it represented some coming to grips on my part with some fears, I think some, you know, small moderate level fears. So one can work with dreams in a skillful way, really any method which gives some room for us to look at what's there, because one of the qualities of the shadow, being a part of ourselves that is somewhat split off, that we're not fully conscious of, there's a tendency, and this was, I think, what Jung believed, there is a tendency for what is in the shadow to want to come to consciousness. It will tend to want to come to consciousness, and we will probably keep on pushing it back. (laughs) And so if we take a different attitude, and it takes some courage, because shadow is typically connected with some, some fears and often with some pain. And even uh, the, the good shadow, as it were, or the, the, the bright shadow, we sometimes call it, uh, is connected with pain. So it takes courage to work with that. So we can use dreams. We can use any method 
which can in a way uh, let us just see what's there without trying to control things. So meditation is a great way to work with shadow material. We sit and we sometimes, and especially when we sit on retreats or do longer periods, uh, we encounter shadow material. You know, I know that's been an important part of my practice pretty much since the beginning. I would sit and I would notice things that I didn't want to um, experience would come into my mind. Or I would notice, I remember one of my noticings a few years into my practice was how much I wanted to control experience. That would be my shadow. I wasn't, if you asked me before that, do you control your experience? I would probably say no, but when I actually got more quiet, I could see what was there beneath the surface. And so we often also see these parts of ourselves. I could see in, when I gave enough room in meditation, I could see my aggression. I could see, I remember, I don't, I don't have a lot of these thoughts now, but I remember in my early years, I could see myself at, when I really followed my consciousness, and this was, uh, I think, in, in retreats particularly, I could see at moments uh, a desire to kill someone, particular friend. <laughs> you know, and of course there's a big difference between having a thought and acting on it. And I, I never acted on things. <laughs> and I'm here. <laughs> but, but, but to recognize that those thoughts, those energies are there, made it less likely for me to, to think of myself as entirely free of those energies. In other words, it starts to leave the shadow And the aim, really, I think, of this work is not to get rid of the shadow, it's to bring it more to consciousness where we can live with it and be skillful, ultimately bring bring love and compassion to it. I think, let me see, there's a beautiful passage from Jung. I don't know if it was Jung or someone else. He basically said, um, let me see where this is. Well, I don't find it. I'll have to paraphrase. It's basically saying what we are hostile to in our own being comes from a failure of love. And so ultimately the response to the shadow, whether on a personal or collective level, is to be able to bring uh, love and awareness and compassion. You know, we do that, can do that personally with the contents of our experience. We can do it socially. You know, something like South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, in which both perpetrators and so-called victims told their stories and were received in a compassionate way, had profound healing both for the individuals and for the collectivity. I think from my knowledge of that, that's the most advanced uh, example of doing that large-scale collective shadow work for whole society that I know of in human history, you know. And we could use that, some version of that, you know. Um, When one doesn't do it, when one doesn't, for example, um, bring awareness to torture, it goes underground. It becomes part of the shadow. And there's questions of timing and what's the best way to do it. Those are real real questions, but when one doesn't do it at all, 
it goes underground and forms the shadow. And um, that, that's a danger right now. It's a big danger. Other methods might be to use art. And I'm thinking next week to ask you to bring your crayons. <laughs> and I'd like to do a little bit of use, use of art to work with the shadow. And I'll come back to that near the end. So one can use art. It's really that which just lets the mind go where it wants to go. Meditation, that happens. It's meditation is a great tool. Uh, ritual, ceremony, being attentive to language, just noticing the way you speak. Mindfulness of speech is a great way to look at the shadow. What are your words that you use? I found, um, some of you know that I have had uh, clown training. I was enrolled in the clown school of San Francisco. I think most, most of you, I bring that up from time to time. And I, you know, I always do carry my clown nose with me just to, to kind of keep my... And, and that clown work was also using humor as a way of dealing with the shadow that the clown teacher I had basically told us to get in touch with our shadow, exaggerate it, and make it public. <laughs> and that was where the good energy for clown skits was. So we would take something, it was, and it was challenging, you know, you'd take something that was not quite conscious, and you'd study it some, make it, you know, make it, exaggerate it, and then uh, play it out. So there, there actually is, a, you know, it's really an approach using humor, which ultimately has a lot of empathy and compassion. Now, when we don't work with the shadow, we tend to project onto others. And I want to say a little bit about the concept of projection and then talk about some ways of working with it, of working with the shadow. So if I, can, if I cannot uh, express anger, if anger is in my shadow and I have learned how to suppress anger to get love, I will tend to um, be very critical of people who are angry. Kind of almost like the inner logic will be they can't control themselves. You know, why, basically, why, you know, I don't, this isn't so conscious, but why can't they just be like me? I'm a good person and control themselves. So I will tend to um, uh, project my anger onto others. Uh, And so one of the ways of working with the shadow is to see where we're really reactive towards others. There's a good chance that if we look to those places where I'm really reactive, where there's a charge in relation to others, it's very likely there'll be some shadow material there. So it might be, uh, it might be, might be anger. I might be uncomfortable with my sexuality and I tend to uh, criticize those who flaunt their sexuality. That will be very likely a, ca- a case of projection. More obvious cases might be where I, my sh- part of my shadow is my beauty or my brilliance and I put a lot of attention onto so-called stars. You know, a lot of what we find with the phenomenon of stars, Hollywood stars or sports stars, involves projection. Another place where projection occurs is when we demonize people. You know, we, when we demonize, when we 
uh, sort of, you know, as a, let's say I'm an activist and I demonize the Wall Street bankers. I think they're really greedy and I don't acknowledge my own greed. There's a kind of projection there that's occurring. Do you get that sense? I'm projecting onto the others. In foreign policy, projection is the norm. <laughs> and so I think a good case could be made that there's a huge amount of mutual projection, for example, between Bush and Osama bin Laden. You know, they, the other is completely evil. I am good. I have no evil. I have no responsibility. You know, and so that, uh, or uh, I project all evil onto the evil empire. You know, and they do something similar. It comes ultimately from an inability to be with one's own experience in an honest way. Um, need I say that there's a certain amount of projection with romantic relationships? <laughs> and again, it's, it's, if one works with it, it's, it's fine. But what do we do? We, we, and it's one reason, you know, that we fall in love, right? Because there's a certain amount of projection. Oh, this person is so wonderful, just entirely good, you know, and I might not feel that in myself. So positive thing that can happen in relationships is we can work with our shadows and actually start to internalize the qualities of the other that we thought were so great that we didn't think we had in ourselves. And there can occur what I like to call an inner marriage where we take in the inner qualities of the other. But the projection mechanism is very strong. And we see it a lot, for example, on, um, in meditation retreats. We have what we call Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas, <laughs> which are where, where we imagine, you know, and it, it, it can get pretty extreme. I know one, one teacher he charted it because he was having interviews with people and they were acknowledging this. He charted that one person uh, received the projections from 17 people at, at a retreat. <laughs> and, um, and so we can, you know, we see this. How, how many people have experienced that on retreats? Explain what it is a little bit. Okay. Well, if you've been on retreat and done it, you know. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's basically where I notice someone, and I may or may not have a partner, it doesn't, it's kind of independent of that, I may, I may notice someone, haven't spoken to the person, don't have eye contact, but, you know, particularly for longer retreats, I'm a, I'm a month in silence, and, you know, there's not that much to do on a retreat. <laughs> <laughs> and so I will, I will tend to fantasize, right? I will tend to fantasize, and I'll tend to project, and um, it, I, a lot of it, ultimately is quite humorous when, you know, people, I remember Gil Fransdell, I think it's okay, this is public, he tells the story of having a Vipassana romance on a person. He, 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 a long retreat, he built up a whole story where they might get married and where they live. <laughs> and then when he actually met the person in the retreat, she was from another country, she didn't even speak English, and everything just totally disintegrated in about 10 seconds. <laughs> uh, and same thing with vendettas. We can really, you know, just have this negative energy go outward. You know, scapegoating is a form of projection. So ultimately the practice is to take back the projections. It's to see where one projects to take them back. So let me mention a few ways to do that, and particularly that come out of 
uh, Buddhist practice. Because I think that ultimately the genesis of the shadow is in the inability to be directly with a given experience with awareness and compassion and love. That's what generates the shadow as children for understandable reasons. How can I be with some experience of loss when my parents divorce when I'm seven years old? You know, I can't, that that experience is too immense for me. And so it tends to go into my shadow, you know, where I tend to be uh, deeply driven by a fear of loss, let's say. or in a society, you know, dealing with the history of slavery or the, or the Holocaust is, is immense, you know. It's how can we deal with that? So it goes into the shadow. So, but I think it's helpful just to see from a point of view of what the process is, there is some inability to be present with a given experience, with compassion and wisdom. So what's interesting is that is exactly the aim of our practice. And so we can find ways to open up to the shadow and bring it, into, uh, bring it into awareness gradually and bring wisdom and compassion. I think that, and I'll talk maybe more later, I think it's exactly the same mechanism for the shadow in a family, in an organization, or in the society. I think this is... Um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. The condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. So in a way, particularly the shadow that's connected with pain, we have to learn how to be present to the pain. And we get those tools in our practice. The Buddha, in his life story, exemplifies, in a way, coming to deal with the shadow. It's quite interesting. Some of you know his story of being brought up in a, uh, basically a pampered situation. He was uh, you know, the son of a king and queen. They had received a prophecy that he would either be a great ruler or a great spiritual sage. They had a strong preference for the first <laughs> to happen. And so they thought that one way to avoid having him become a sage was to shelter him from the suffering of life. And that way he'd be a politician. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's historical that's in the, that's in the story <laughs> and so uh, they did and he all signs of um, suffering were off limits in other words they were part of the shadow he wasn't permitted to see any signs of death or illness or I think even of poverty and is this a little familiar? <laughs> you know, how many of us have lived with certain amounts of privilege or where we aren't exposed to certain things? And so for him, we could, we could say that those existential realities were part of the shadow. What happened then in the story, and it's like kind of a legend, is that on four successive nights, he went out beyond the boundaries of the palace and encountered shadow phenomena. It's interesting. He had to leave the constricted area and open up 
to actually get in touch with the shadow. It's a metaphor for those different methods I mentioned. You know, dreams, art, meditation. We, they, we go beyond the usual boundaries. He had to go beyond the usual boundaries and he encountered on successive nights an old person, a dying person, a corpse, and then a yogi, someone on the spiritual path. And it totally shattered his world. And he said, I have to, he basically said, I have to deal with the shadow. We don't have the concept of the shadow in Buddhist tradition, but I think it's, the translation is pretty good. He said, I have to deal with that. And he went off on a search for six years to really to face reality directly and not to hide from any part of himself. And that is what we call awakening, is that quality of coming to all to awareness of all the parts of oneself. And he had to come to direct awareness of these very fundamental realities. So one way that we work with the shadow is to open up to those existential realities, particularly aging, sickness, death, impermanence, and so forth. Not easy, a part of our practice. Another way that we can look at the shadow, and I'll encourage us to to work with these in the next week, Another way we can work with the shadow is to look at our self-images. Ask, what are my self-images? What do I allow? What is not part of my self-image? And we can look at, in the next week, in our ordinary encounters, when does my self-image get enforced on a situation or on a person? How do I construct my self-image? What's off-limits? How do I define myself as good? What parts of myself are not part of my self-image? What's my shadow? What's, what's my shadow in relation to my self-image? What parts of my own experience do I try to suppress sometimes when they appear? What do I feel uncomfortable with? These are not easy questions. They can be disquieting questions. But those are, those are questions to ask. And then the last one would be um, to look where there's a lot of charge or reactivity in an encounter with another person. <coughs> and it doesn't at all mean that the other person doesn't have responsibility for his or her action or the situation. But we have responsibility for ours. <laughs> You know, for our, re- for our reactions. So it doesn't mean to say, okay, I'm really, I have a big charge with my boss acting totally insane. Maybe, that, maybe that's an extreme example that doesn't happen so much. Maybe not. Um, but that was a joke, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but we can look, we can look. What, what triggers me? What's the charge? Is there a way that I project? When do I create a situation with another person in which I'm entirely right and the other person is entirely wrong? Very good uh, probability that there's shadow material there when it gets so extreme. And yet we do that a lot. You know, you know I'm good, that person's bad. We may be denying something in our own, in our own being, in our own shadow. And again, we can, we can look also, just when we're doing mindfulness practice, something comes up. 
when do I say, I don't like this, let's get rid of this, in meditation. That might be shadow material. And again, it can be not just the painful or the difficult, it can also be the beautiful. I think the shadow, we have a bright shadow, as it, as it were, as well as a dark shadow. Let me see. So I think I'll end here and really invite us in the next week. You might want to work with those specific practices. Uh, so I mentioned, and see, see if one of them particularly appeals to you. And really take it as a daily practice um, in terms of my self-image. What is part of my self-image? What is not? How does that appear in my daily life? And then maybe just these two practices, looking at self-image and then looking where there's charge or reactivity. And you can take notes on this. And I think next week I'll, I will invite people, I'll bring some paper and pencils, but if you can bring, and I'll bring, I have a box of crayons, a, like a big box with, you know, like 200 crayons. And I'll bring those in and, we, and I, I want to do a little bit of probably artwork next time. To, to work with this. But I invite you to do those two practices to explore this territory. And, um, and it can be something that is very, actually very exhilarating because it's really bringing awareness and wisdom and compassion to where in our own lives there may in the past have been pain or confusion. But it's not easy and it really, it's really helpful to have a co- whole community doing that. So let's just sit for about 30 seconds and then we can talk together a little bit. some time for questions or discussion. Please, Barbara. Are all those highly reactive judgments, that's your shadow side too? If yeah. Just, just categorize that. Yeah. The, the question was when we're really judgmental towards another person, let's say, you know, private or public or a situation, is that uh, opening up to shadow material? I would say yes. That's, I think, that's, that's a reason I think why the work with uh, judgments can be so powerful because it opens us up to these uh, deep and often unconscious uh, uh, constructions of self that often are, you know, come from a very young age and that are driving us but we're not so aware. So a lot of this is murky and yet we can, when, with these different tools, meditation and sometimes <coughs> psychological work or creative work, it can open up and it can become quite, uh, quite wondrous. I mean, it, it, one can look at the world very differently. You can see the world not in the usual way. It really is like, it becomes a little more magical because one sees the way the mind is constructing things. It's like the world is less solid and like the mind is just constructing these situations out of unconscious material. You know, and one can look at, one can read the news and see, oh my God, it's like, you know, 
Okay, it's like to report, okay, this column, report on the shadow in this part of the world. Okay, report on the shadow here. Shadow phenomena erupting. <laughs> a lot of social chaos is completely shadow material, which means that societies don't have a good way, don't have very good ways of working with this. And I think that's where we're evolving as a species. So it's, it's a, it can feel a little overwhelming, right? It's a lot. So I'm like, God, there's a shadow that's everywhere. <laughs> Even at Spirit Rock, maybe. <laughs> Please, yeah. I'm curious about what you noticed <coughs> when you were an intern about what was taboo to talk about in Congress. And if you see similar mm. things now. The question was, what was taboo to talk about when I was working in Congress? Um, I don't remember all the specifics. I remember the general category, which was that uh, there were certain um, issues which everyone knew what the solution was, but they were considered politically impossible to deal with. This was like 30 years ago. And um, you know, it may have been um, something around race relationships or, or uh, environmental issues. And it was just uh, so there were congressional committees of people actually looked at the problems. And all of them knew, okay, this is clearly the solution. And it might even have political backing, but it was considered politically um, impossible to deal with. I think single-payer health insurance is like that now. You know, polls show that 60, 70 percent of the population approves of it, but it's like uh, doesn't get anywhere, even, even with Obama. And so, you know, another taboo right now, right after 9-11, it was taboo to talk about uh, the U.S. having any responsibility through its foreign policy for any actions which might have triggered the attacks. Not to say that, you know, not to say there's not also immense responsibility by the attackers, but, you know, that was taboo. You couldn't go there. In other words, to look at our own um, moral failings has often been taboo. Um, has often been taboo in this country. Yeah. Please, go on. Can you uh, speak a little bit to when, instead of projecting, there are situations in which one absorbs other people's yeah. projections? Yeah, yeah. question is about if, if there's a lot of projection going on, some examples maybe of where we are absorbing other people's projections and sort of um, having their shadow imposed, internalized, as it were. You know, so I think a lot of, uh, well, a lot of uh, um, images of being a man or a woman are like that. We get certain images projected by the society as to what it means to be a man or a woman. And we internalize that. And a lot of people here probably have done immense work to try to work with that, right? To deconstruct that. We get tremendous amount of projections. Do you remember the passages that I read from my friend who is blind about the kind of projection she gets as a blind person? You know, oh, you must have such a wretched life. You know, or do you remember there's um, uh, another friend who's in a wheelchair. Uh, someone approached him in a grocery store and said, um, I, I admire you so much. If I were you, I would kill myself. <laughs> You know, and that's that's projection. <laughs> that's projection. It's that person's inability to be. And again, it's understandable. We can have some compassion for that person also, because it comes out of an inability 
to be with the experience. So that's, I'm, I'm trying to simplify. All this is going to get really complicated. I think it comes down to an inability to be with a given experience with awareness and wisdom and compassion. You know, when we ultimately trace it back, you know, things can get very, very, uh, what, um, um, complicated. You know, I can have, because uh, I can't deal with um, this person's blindness, I may get very complicated ideas about it, but ultimately there's something about that sense of loss which is just uncomfortable for me. I can't deal with it. Uh, James Baldwin said this, it this way. He said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates, and we could imagine all the ideologies and thoughts, one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. So, so that we get a lot of projection and we internalize it, you know, about, uh, you know, probably the obvious ones would be around gender or maybe race at times. Think of the projections African Americans get, right? Or disabled people or, or maybe typical people in the non-mainstream categories. Yeah. Please, Karen. So in practice, yeah. if I want to deal with my shadow, yeah. the things aren't coming up, is it just a question of patience and waiting and whatever needs to come up? Yeah. Well, I'm... I'm, I'm the question, I, oh, question was, if I'm not getting a lot of immediate shadow material now, is it just a matter of patience to wait till they occur? <laughs> is that, is that fair in, practice. in practice. It really a question is about how do we practice with the shadow. Um, some of it is subtle. Maybe that's where your question is, that understanding is coming out of it. Some of it is subtle. And so we may just sit, and it's not like we're going to get some huge dramatic shadow material announcing itself, right? You know, the next. So some of it is subtle. It would be to really, you know, I'll give these three practices for working with the shadow, and you may find others. I mean, some of you probably, how many people work actively with dreams? Or work, how many, for how many people are dreams a significant practice? So you're probably already working with the shadow, with dreams. So it's to see where your mind goes, and, you know, when you, because um, uh, dreams are a way. Uh, how many of you are artists or work with art or creativity? And so probably the dream uh, shadow idea is probably meaningful to you there. And um, so in meditation, it might be particularly looking out for those times when you want to get rid of something that's arising. Uh, or where you where there's some charge. It could, there could also be an attraction to it. So it's to look at some things arising in consciousness which typically you don't want to be there. You know, it might be certain, um, you know, it could be aggression. It could be uh, anger. It could be hatred. It could be something which doesn't fit your sense of who you are or who you are as a meditator. That's subtle. So it's to look out for that, and it may, you know, it's it may just be something that just goes for uh, five seconds. It's not going to be some necessarily a big cathartic experience where you the music, you know, dun 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 dun, the shadow is here. <laughs> it's 
So it could be more subtle. And um, a second practice is that practice, it could, this could be a, a reflection practice. You could just ask yourself, where, what is my self-image of myself? And what areas uh, do I try not to, what areas in my experience do I try, what am I uncomfortable with that don't fit my self-image? And that, that's tricky because there's some parts of ourselves that are not helpful that we, you know, rightfully say, well, I'm not going to, uh, p- part of my past may be to, what, to um, get really uh, angry with people and self-righteous, <clears throat> you know, and I've worked through that so I don't act on that, and that may be quite positive. But the, the shadow might appear if we somehow try to suppress that energy. And so the, the practice would be in meditation would be to allow it just to let it be there and be present. And you can, also, you can be very clear on what you act on. So a lot of this right now is more uh, to look, to ask questions, to reflect, to notice. And you can still, you know, the, I think less of an implication for, for acting with, with others. So first area, look in meditation to where there's a tendency to try to push away something. Second, to um, look for where self-image arises, both in uh, meditation or in daily life flow, and to ask reflectively, are there areas of my uh, experience that I try to suppress because they don't fit my self-image that might actually have something valuable for me? And the third one is, look to where there's a lot of charge with another person and ask the question, is there some shadow material there? And this is really more just opening up an inquiry rather than we may not get conclusive answers. Anyone up for investigating the shadow? Raise your hand if you want to sign up. <laughs> okay. And you may have other methods. One of the things we can do next week you may have your own ways of working with what we call the shadow. But be aware of the shadow. You know, look at the news with the, with, uh, through the perspectives of shadow. It's a little bit intense sometimes to do that. But look at it. Look at these practices. And you may have your own ways of investigating this territory. People up for it? Yeah. Uh, Cynthia, yeah. I'll be brief because we're at, we're at time. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, some some of my self-image is is negative, and most most of us have that, and um, so there it might be the the shadow might be the beautiful parts. That's a, that's an important point. So I may have more critical self-image. And my shadow might be my beauty, or my ability to be incredibly smart, or my ability to just be really compassionate. And I may not hold that as my self-image. So the shadow can be, probably for a lot of us, is our beautiful parts. 
You know, so that, that could also be part of that. Great, I'm great, you, glad you added that because it's a really important point. So some of the shadow isn't necessarily negative. Jung mostly talked about the negative aspects, but I think it's important to talk about the, the beautiful aspects which we don't fully acknowledge. And so um, part of the shadow work is to open to our own, um, we might say, awakened qualities. And so, and to, to give them room, because if, if we have a negative self-image, uh, you know, we do something beautiful or really brilliant and so forth, and the self-image that organizes our experience either doesn't recognize it or makes it trivial, right? And when it actually may not be, maybe something just to celebrate and say, this was magnificent what you just did, amazing, you know, without undue pride. <laughs> but to actually give it room. So that's some of what, so just to let the sense of uh, a joy be there and experience and sit with it. You know, so I'll close with this thought, but it may be that not only is it sometimes difficult to be with pain, but it's sometimes difficult to be with happiness or joy because it doesn't fit who we think we are. And so part of the experience is when we have a moment of happiness or joy, let it be there and actually know that it's happening. Yeah, so thank you so much, Cynthia. That was really great. So let's just sit for a minute to finish. Whatever may have been helpful from the day to bring that to awareness and any intentions that you have for continuing this investigation. And I'll close with a very short reading from Thomas Merton and then Dedication of Merit. He says, The basic and most fundamental problem of the spiritual life is the acceptance of our hidden self. And so we offer the fruits of the morning out beyond these boundaries for the benefit and healing and taking back of projections for all beings. <laughs> so thank you so much for your attention. I could really feel people staying with this. So. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.